Welcome, world travelers, to Global Connections. We're your hosts, DJ Cassie Local. And I'm DJ Jada J Global. As your hosts, we're passionate in bringing you, no matter where you are, into the know of topics that relate to international social justice and equity to help bridge ourselves with the struggles of others. In this episode, we'll dig into the intricacies of a world that now faces both a climate crisis and a crisis of accountability for who or what will help solve it and how. We'll see where the idea of just transitions paints its way through that process to help our world adapt to the impacts of climate change. course, we need an expert to help guide us through this process. So I'd like to take some time to introduce one of my professors, Dr. Dimitri Stevis, a professor of Colorado State University who works in the political science department. Dr. Stevis, welcome to the show. My pleasure to be here. Dr. Stevis teaches courses relating to international relations, the global political economy, and green political economies alongside other topics. His research examines the intersections of how our environment and the global economy interact with social power, justice, and both local and global dynamics. Just Transitions has been his focus for over a decade, and this all involves everything from how we can work to be more economically and socially equitable to moving beyond the production of harmful fuels. So essentially, we definitely brought the right person here for the job. I actually had the opportunity to take class with Dr. Dimitris this past semester where we studied globalization, justice, and sustainability. And I really saw the importance of creating systems that allow us to live and work sustainably and equitably in the community and the world around us. So I'm really excited to get into this topic with you. So I think to really understand why Just Transitions is so important, we should frame some context around what's happened recently in our world in relation to climate. So in 2017, the U.S. gave notice that it was leaving the Paris Accord. The Paris Accords was meant to help curb greenhouse gas emissions and keep countries responsible and accountable. Uh, This has also continued a long process of the Trump administration rescinding or weakening a lot of environmental protection laws in favor of resource accessibility for certain industries, especially the fossil fuel industry. The EU, just within this last month, announced that by 2050 it wants to try and curb uh, any greenhouse gas emissions down to 0%, but other European countries have an issue with the feasibility of that and whether or not that will be possible. Intense weather patterns have also increased, and the Australian wildfires are obviously being tied to this influence of climate change. So in essence, our world really isn't in that great of a shape. If you had to describe it in one word, what would that be for you, Dr. Stibbings? Just transition says that there has to be a transition, and that that transition has to be just rather than unjust. Transitions take all kinds of shapes. It could be due to artificial intelligence. It could be through, due, due to a war. However, contemporarily in the last 30 years, the term just transition has been associated with the environment. And it started uh, as a very explicit strategy uh, by the Oil, Chemical, and Atomic Workers Union in Denver, Colorado. And this is an interesting observation because uh, the state of Colorado uh, last year is the first state in the union to also adopt a just transition policy. So essentially, it doesn't just see climate policy as being like this airy, overarching thing that people aren't really familiar with, but ends up impacting them anyway. And then instead places people within a holistic social justice framework alongside the environment. Yes, absolutely. That's, that's, I think the just transition associated with the environment is probably one of the most 
significant fusions of nature and society uh, in the sense that it recognizes that an environmental transition or climate transition has to take place and that it has to be just. And that is very, very important because it's one thing to include justice in crafting a particular policy and another thing to include it afterwards. It's very, very difficult to include things afterwards. And one example of how difficult it is to include things afterwards are perhaps our uh, airports. All the security lines we go through, they were added after 9-11, and they are really very problematic and very slow and just don't work very well. So if you really mean to include justice or anything else in a particular policy, it is desirable to do it in crafting the policy and not wait and see. There are four periods in the evolution of the just transition concept and strategy, and I will briefly just discuss them. The first period is the 1970s and 1980s, where environmental legislation in the United States called for doing away with toxics and chemicals and other hazardous practices. A lot of unions, a lot of communities, a lot of businesses, a lot of government were opposed to that, but there were some uh, visionary uh, environmentalists and union leaders who said, well, we are part of the problem, and we do need to transition from toxics and chemicals, but we should do it in an equitable way. At the time, in the 70s, they called it the GI Bill for workers, like the GI Bill that helped all those soldiers, all those veterans adjust to life after World War II. Uh, during the 1980s, when the Superfund policy was adopted to clean up toxics and mediate uh, places that have suffered from mining or other uh, nuclear explosions and so on, uh, they called the Superfund for workers. Uh, Superfund is a major policy. It has uh, already cost more than a trillion dollars. It's not a small policy. In the 1990s, as the environmental justice movement was emerging, the term just transition was first used in 1995. Uh, and it was promoted by the oil, chemical, and atomic workers and a number of environmental justice organizations, including indigenous, Asian-American organizations, and other frontline communities. And the two constituencies, workers, communities, uh, and uh, advocates of community and environmental justice worked very hard to find common ground. There was a lot of discussion of just transition in the United States and Canada in the late 1990s, but after 2001, in response to opposition by certain uh, mining unions and corporations, and also because of the nationalism that followed 9-11, uh, a just transition disappeared in the U.S., but it was picked up. That's a second major period. It was picked up by the global union organizations, which are small organizations that bring together unions from around the world, but also by national unions that were environmentalists. Trade unions, Congress in England, uh, the Commission of Obreras in Spain, unions in Australia. And they managed to nurture the concept, uh, particularly in relationship to climate negotiations that were becoming more and more prominent. For the first decade of, the, of the, this millennium and all the way up to 2013, 2014, the only people that would use the concept of just transition and promote it would be mostly unions, not even environmentalists. But 2013, 2014, climate justice activists uh, started adopting the language and trying to find a, con a connection. In 2015, it was uh, included in the preamble of the Paris Agreement. It was a major symbolic step. That same year, the International Labour Organization adopted uh, guidelines for just transition. And in the last five years, what we have seen is a proliferation of mm -hmm. just transition proposals and, and policies. And that's the important part. When you were going through the history of just transitions, you mentioned the GI Bill and being an instrumental in kind of laying the foundation for where how we interpret or understand just transitions today. I think what's also important to talk about who was kept out from the GI Bill. 
communities that specifically black soldiers um, that were once promised the GI Bill and those um, benefits did not receive them. And so how does Just Transition uh, center communities and specifically these marginalized individuals who haven't had their voices heard? Yeah, that's, that's a very important point. In my work and the work of others, uh, one of our goals is to really be able to analyze Just Transition in a way that does not create illusions of inclusion and justice. So I think it's very important to ask who is included, including nature, and ask that question very thoroughly rather than just be satisfied with the usual suspects. And the second thing, in fact, everybody, including nature, is included, is that in a just way, because inclusion doesn't guarantee justice. You may be included in a way that makes you a supplicant, you are not really an active participant, you're not entitled to your rights, or you can be included in a way that makes you into an agent, into somebody who participates. So I think it's very important for us to keep asking the question, of who is included and how are they included. Because you're absolutely right Definitely. that quite frequently very good policies have serious, serious gaps mm. and create invisible populations. Yeah. So I, kind of tying into that too, what role does the economy play for people who are already marginalized, for people who whose job security is already fragile? Where does just transitions in the economy come into play in keeping them not just protected from policies that might have negative impacts on them that are not foreseen, but helping them transition to an industry that can really support them as people? That's a very important question, because, and that also speaks to trying to understand what is the content of a particular just transition policy, we have to ask the question. So at a very, very minimal level, it might be that a particular plant, a particular mine, a particular activity it gets discontinued and some funds are made available to people and communities to help them sort of get through the most difficult moments. That's certainly not the vision of just transition that the originators had. The originators have a vision whereby there will be a just transition fund similar to social security to create a social safety network that would allow communities and people to be kept whole, that would allow them to get retrained, or allow them to retire, or allow them to move if they, if they so desire. So it was a much more comprehensive and holistic approach. Training alone is not enough. Now, there's a very important question. You know, one can, has to talk about the economy that we were leaving behind, the people left behind, the uh, coal miners, or perhaps uh, the oil uh, workers, or uh, other in, people in the toxics. And we definitely need to deal with those particular people. We need to provide uh, a safety network uh, that is comprehensive and cohesive. And the current coronavirus crisis points out to what is a comprehensive safety network and what is not. The other thing, though, is that as we are moving into a green economy, into a renewable energy economy, we also have to ask the question of who is included and how. Because it is very possible that we're going to have a very thriving renewable energy economy that employs the same categories of people, white males, for example, as opposed to people of color, women, immigrants, and so on. So just transition also applies to the world that is coming. How is the international and global community, I think, contributing to setting precedents and standards 
so that we can hold businesses and these individual, maybe private industries accountable? That's a very important question. And I, I will discuss the two levels. I think it's very important for us to ask, first of all, whether a just transition policy, whether in Canada or in Scotland or in Colorado, covers the whole fossil fuel industry and all industries that we think are affecting the environment and climate in particular. And if those policies focus only on coal, for instance, which is commonly the case, then we have to ask the question, why is natural gas not included? Why is oil not included? Where are we going to go with that? I think that we need to ask those communities, those countries, and also the global climate negotiations to include all fossil fuels. In terms of global policy, I mean, there are other very important global policies on biodiversity, on toxics, that questions of just transitions also emerge. But climate is so big and so existential that one could say if we can include specific just transition implementation goals, mm. mitigation and adaptation goals in the global climate policies, that's really going to have a momentous impact uh, on the whole world because of the nature of the issue. So for many people, the next goal, the people that international trade union organizations and environmentalists, their primary goal is to move beyond the preamble of, let's say, the Paris Agreement, beyond the Katowice Declaration that was adopted by 55 countries in Katowice at the COP there in 2018, to actually including specific provisions in the rule book, specific provisions in the climate agreements. There is a debate going on about whether we should be using the market, like cap and trade or, or taxes or some other mechanisms. I do not have an answer to this particular thing, but the point that most people who are in favor of just transition make is that just transition has to be a public policy for the common good rather than a private policy or even a segmented city policy. That's interesting. I think you were starting to touch on a little bit, but specifically the oil and gas industry internationally has a lot of soft power, I think, in setting climate precedent. I mean, we just saw this recently with OPEC in Saudi Arabia um, messing with oil and gas prices and that having a global uh, impact, especially with coronavirus shifting around. In terms of accountability, I mean, where where can policy really help sort of private soft power like hold it accountable to how it impacts people, but also governments mm. and economies so that, you know, they don't just leverage it against yeah. people who want to introduce just Well, I think here, you know, we have to understand that domestic politics is very, very important. And domestic politics is particularly important with respect to a small number of countries because the oil and gas industry are driven by four or five countries, the United States, Canada, Russia, Saudi Arabia, and Australia to some degree. Uh, if those countries do not adopt a different kind of energy policy, then the likelihood that climate negotiation will be successful is minimized. Moreover, what I, I'm, you know, we saw the split between Russia and uh, Saudi Arabia over the price of oil. Moreover, those five countries that I mentioned and a few others that you know next to them are not only interested in having enough energy for themselves. They are exporting a lot of energy. So in a sense, they are very, very eager and committed to ensuring that the rest of the world consumes their products. 
And one of the, you know, until recently, the United States was a net importer of oil. But now, with shale oil and shale gas, we have become an exporter. So while in the past we would say, for instance, we want to intervene here or there to make sure that there is no uh, disruption in the flow of energy into this country, I'm concerned now that the opposite will take place, that we will intervene to make sure that our oil and our natural gas as the markets are necessary, or the Saudi oil or the Australian coal. Uh, so this, so in, in this, the point I'm making here is that domestic politics in a number of key countries is really central. If we cannot get those countries to uh, change their domestic practices, we are really facing a major issue that cannot be resolved at the global negotiations. Yeah, I really liked how you mentioned a little bit earlier, I think this idea of a collective mindset, you know, changing it so our perspectives are more centered on community action. But how do we work with, I think, not just individual communities, but national like governments to invest into climate change and to start fostering this collective mindset? Yeah. Well, like everything else, I mean, persuading uh, a government to do anything new, uh, it's a political process, right? Yeah. We see that with uh, healthcare and education and what have you. Uh, I think the first step is for people to get together and to formulate a realistic but ambitious agenda of uh, just transition and try mm. to make it part of the national narrative, uh, like we have. Some people have made healthcare for all part of the national narrative. It is a, a very uh, daunting opportunity. However, it's also possible to promote just transition at the more local and state level, and we have had some examples of that. So, people, environmentalists, and labor unions, and climate justice activists getting together and pushing cities and states in our state to adopt the just transition. In our state, for instance, the just transition was a result of very interesting learning experience involving labor unions, environmentalists, and community activists over a period of time. Again, even in those very, very attractive cases, very hopeful cases, we have to ask who is included and how. So I don't think that we should feel impotent or incapacitated. It is possible to do it. Mm. It's possible to do it at the, at the local level, at the state level. It's harder to do it at the national level, but ultimately, I think, that one of the greatest goals of climate policy would be to turn a country like the United States towards climate policy and just transition. I think that will have a major impact in the United States. And there have been some proposals, a just transition proposals, as you know, and also the Green New Deal idea includes a just transition. Mm. So that could be the narrative for organizing and finding solutions. Yeah. And as just transition proliferates on the local level, you know, like you said, it, a lot of these micro uh, actions will lead to hopefully, hopefully right. a bigger yeah. change in perception. And yeah, you're right. And the, the uh, C40, which is an, a network of large cities around the world, has uh, adopted uh, not a policy but uh, an agenda on just transition. So if, for instance, some of those very, very large cities, New York, Paris, Tokyo, Yokohama, adopt the just transition strategy, I mean, that would be a momentous development. In terms of technology, do you see that putting a place on just transitions in terms of potentially being a very digestible concept to corporations and companies who might yeah. be responsible for instituting that technology? Yes. I mean, I, clearly, if we, you know, if a, a renewable energy and non-fossil fuel economy will require a new technology, but technology is political. It, it's political in terms of how it's produced and how it is used. 
if we are going to bring along corporations, if we're going to bring along governments, if we want to bring along communities, I think there is a great attraction to telling them that they should be leaders in this new technology of the future. And not just renewable energy, it's efficiency, very high technology, efficiency mechanisms, conservation. Uh, if we think of sustainability transitions to go beyond climate, green chemistry, how we what we eat and how we produce what we eat. There is a lot of promise in coming up with really innovative, nature-protective technologies. But the question is, are those technologies going to be used properly? Because as I mentioned earlier on, if you have a, a large corporation that one of its portfolios is renewable energy, another portfolio is coal, another portfolio is nuclear energy, they see renewable energy as just another revenue source. Well, I don't think that's enough. If we are going to, for a corporation to just say, well, I do renewable energy, but I also do nuclear power, I also do natural gas. I, I think that that corporation is not really contributing. And that I think that if the governments contribute to creating the technology, because as you probably know, a lot of the technology that we're using today is the product of publicly funded research. I think it's fair on the part of the community, on the part of society to say, if you're going to be using the technology, if you're going to have that social license, you need to also start using it in a way that's changing yourself. You need to change as a whole. You just cannot do one thing and then negate it by doing something else. Mm -hmm. mm. But technology is very important, very promising, and it's a, a way to, to sell this transition to the younger generation. Yeah, and I think a big aspect of that also is who has access to this technology, um, particularly you know when we're talking about like the global south and um, less developed areas within these. So how are we going to um, include them into yeah. these just transitions? You know, it's complex. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And somebody would say, well, you have a, poorer countries, they cannot do it. I mean, just transition is expensive. Well, you know, that's a kind of a little bit of a snobber. You know, you can do things more efficiently. I just learned today that Vietnam, a very poor country, has had an incredibly successful coronavirus policy because they were committed mm. and they knew. So we can do the same thing. If you go to many countries in the global south, you may find that people use cell phones rather than have landlines. They skip essentially a technological stage. We can do the same. I mean, one of the, the issues is that perhaps we want to help incentivize a lot of countries in the global south to avoid some of the most destructive kinds of technologies if they're not using already. All I think in this particular case, the global north, uh, the rich of the world, have to help in this particular transition. They have to help by allowing the best available technology to be sold, be made available. The problem that I raised earlier on is that some of the uh, most industrial countries, the richest countries in the world, are not simply not doing things in an environmental way domestically. They're pushing anti-environmental policies. And a prime example of that, which is really very concerning, is that Australia just agreed with Indian billionaire Adani create a huge coal mine and all the coal will be exported to India. So India will become a coal-using country. Now, what is interesting here is that India is also the source of some of the most sophisticated wind technology in the world. So why is it that India is not moving more in the direction of wind technology and instead it's going, locking itself into coal? So the point is that the global north has to facilitate an environmental just transition from the global south. And second, the global north has to stop imposing technologies of the past 
onto the global south, which is mm. happening right now. The framing of these issues is like really important. You know, it's really absolutely influences our perceptions and how we um, interpret the issue at hand. I think connecting to that, maybe we could wrap it up with this question. For people listening at home, what are some tangible ways that they can implement just transition or get a part of, be a part of the movement? I mean, like any other movement, you have to see who is working for a just transition, who is working, even if they don't use the term just, they use equitable sustainability. They want to make our city more equitable. City of Fort Collins is discussing equity in its climate action plan. There are plenty of opportunities to get involved. Whether if if you're working, if you're in a union, how do you turn your union in the direction of actually dealing with the climate and just transition? If you're an environmentalist, if you're a community activist, if you are in in your in your workplace, how you can persuade your employer to start thinking about these long terms. Mm. So there are many ways. But I don't want to say that this is an easy process. It's not an easy process in the same sense that climate policy is not an easy process. We see how hard it has been to adopt climate and everybody's telling us an existential crisis. But I do think that it's worthwhile to start talking about just transition now rather than saying let's have climate policy and then just transition. And I think, as you said earlier on, it's important to highlight the win-win opportunities, smart technology, the different kind of world, not only well, we're just going to take care of the people that are left behind. We should do that. Just Transition also has a promise because it says there has to be a transition. And that transition has to take place because it's desirable. Yeah. Because where we're at is a bad thing. So that promise of a good transition has to be upfront. Hmm. So Just Transition is not just a defensive mechanism. It's, if you wish, it's a proactive hmm. agenda. In my view... It is one of the most proactive agendas because it says we have to transition. Sometimes that's said by people whose jobs are going to be lost. But I think they would they, they say we are part of the problem, but we're willing to do it if it's done in a humane and just way for us and our communities. Hmm. I think it makes sense. Yeah. But the road is hard. Yeah. We all have a part to play in it. Definitely. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much to our guest, Dr. Dimitris Stevis. Thank we you. We appreciate thank you, you all, our curious audience, for also tuning in to Global Connections. Uh, remember, you can always follow our show on KSCSU-FM under podcasts. And don't forget to follow us on the Office of International Programs Instagram and Facebook pages, as well as KCSU's pages to see up-to-date episodes and new content. This is DJ Cassie Local. And DJ Jada J Global. Thank you for learning with us today. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. The views in this podcast are our own and not the views of Colorado State University, KCSU, or CSU's Office of International Programs.